It is not important that the war is won. It's important that the war is fought. And that's right. Constantly. Yeah. Specifica has always been at war with Eurasia. Yep. And the virus has never been airborne. All right. Let's bring the room up. <laughs> All right. We ready? All right. Welcome to the Sprocket Podcast, where we are simplifying the good life and getting way too political. I'm Brock Dittis. And I'm Joan Pettit, broadcasting from the anarchist jurisdiction of Portland, nestled in the heart of Cascadia. And I'm Aaron Flores. We are the show that brings you somewhat irreverent conversations about the intricacies of thinking locally with the global perspective and enjoying the best that life has to, to offer along the way. Covering bicycling, trains and transit, adventures and life hacks, and today, Black Resilience with Cameron Witten. I'm really, really glad we got to talk to Cameron. This was a good interview, and yeah. uh, I'm a big fan. I, yeah, I'm such a huge fan of Cameron. I have been following him on Twitter for a long time, um, and I, I told Joan this before we started talking uh, on record, that, but it's kind of when you know somebody online and you know somebody has like some notoriety to them, it's a little bit easy for me to get kind of starstruck. A little nervous, yeah. <laughs> a little nervous. And so I, I hope that didn't show... I tried my best to not let that show too much. <laughs> well, that's what's so funny about it, Aaron, because you were saying that you were a little starstruck and I'm like, oh, I just feel like i know cameron already like we yeah, totally yeah. know each other <laughs> and he's uh very gracious but i don't actually think we've ever met before <laughs> and maybe that's like the perfect uh, the perfect podcast is the confluence of uh, the guest being a little nervous about the you know the opportunity to speak and then the uh, host being a little nervous about the opportunity to speak to the person and uh and that keeps us all heightened and it, uh, it leads to wonderful things yeah i and I thought it was a really good interview. I was just going to say, I don't I don't know if I get to feel proud of Cameron for all that he's done. Because, you know, like I said, I don't know that I do. I just am uh, just, yeah, it's just great to see the work that he is doing. It's yeah. pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he, he makes me proud of people in our city. I, I say our city. I don't, I don't even live in Portland anymore. But, uh, you'll uh, you'll be back. I lived in for 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> you can't. It makes me proud of what Portland away. can do. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right on. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It makes us, he's helping us see a better way to be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, I was talking to him before we started the interview proper about, uh, I, I first met Cameron during the, uh, it was, it was like a journalist meetup thing. Uh, it was at Ron Tom's and it was back in like 2013 or something. I think uh, he said Michael Anderson was running uh, Portland afoot at that point, the, the transit news magazine. And uh, I met Cameron and I thought, wow, this this person is really good at talking to people, and I was like even a little bit uh, a little bit nervous at that point. So uh, uh, Cameron's only gotten better. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, let's roll that interview. Let's roll, and uh, we'll come back on the other side uh, with some of our own thoughts and with our usual segments. Cameron, thanks so much for joining us today on the Sprocket Podcast. Uh, I checked just a little bit earlier, and uh, the Black Resilience Fund on GoFundMe has now raised more than $1.7 million after launching, I think, what, June 1st? 
And um, yes. that's amazing. So congratulations. Um, can you tell us about the Black Resilience Fund and how it got started and how it's going? Thank you so much, Joan. Thank you all for allowing me to be here on this podcast. Uh, my name is Cameron Witten. I am a community activist who uh, has spent the last 11 years, my entire adult life, here in Portland. And I'm the co-founder of the Black Resilience Fund, which is a powerful movement dedicated to fostering healing and resilience in our community during these trying, trying times. When I first saw the headlines about George Floyd, I braced myself. This is not the first time that we heard, I can't breathe. This was not the first time that we saw a Black man's life stolen on camera and distributed across the country. And so uh, when I first saw those headlines, I braced myself because I didn't expect anything to change. You know, maybe we would have a couple of rallies here and there, headlines, the hashtags taking over the internet. Uh, but ultimately at some point, the headlines would fade away, the outrage would die and there would be nothing, no change. But uh, very early on, I could see the paradigm shift slowly coming into fruition. And, you know, I was getting all of these messages from, from white Portlanders. And it was a deluge. It was a flood of messages, phone calls, emails. And it was so interesting because, you know, prior to that point, you know, every time there was injustice against the Black community, Black folks spoke up. Uh, it wasn't that the same reaction for white America. And so here I was getting all of these messages like I'd never had before. I've been a Black Lives Matter activist since Black Lives Matter. And so I went to Facebook the Sunday morning after George Floyd's murder. And I just said, hey, if you have anything to spare, we've got Black Portlanders that need help right now. And by the end of that first day, we raised $11,000. Uh, the next day, the Black Resilience Fund itself, in full name and glory, was born. And, you know, I thought the excitement had died down. You know, I said, maybe we'll raise another $4,000 today. And the second that GoFundMe went live, we raised that $4,000 within an hour. By the end of that first day, we raised $55,000. By the end of the next day, we raised $155,000. And within 28 days, we raised a million dollars that has provided real tangible support to our black neighbors and our very own city. And so uh, we are here uh, since day one. Uh, we have uh, done what we promised to do to foster healing and resilience for our community during these difficult times. Uh, black Portlanders are facing the dual storms of a global pandemic and headline after headline of black pain. And yet we've heard from people who we've supported with a check as small as $300 who have said, you know, I didn't know how I was going to get through this day. But then I walked into my house and I saw that check laying there on the kitchen table. And holding that check in my hand was when I finally felt I could come up for air. So here we are in the middle of the I Can't Breathe era. And we're literally hearing from Black Portlanders that our support is giving them air to breathe. And so uh, that is what we're doing to this day. A hundred days later, we are building a powerful movement for change in our community and showing that we do believe Black Lives Matter and we're showing that with action. 
um, that's, yeah, this must feel amazing to be doing this. Um, and I guess I'm, can you just talk a little bit more about how you're using these funds and how you're distributing them? Um, because it just sounds like, for as exciting as it is, it just also sounds like a lot of work. Like it just takes a lot of organization and time to do all this. So how is that working? Yes, uh, I, I've been working 100 hours a day since June 1st and 100 hours a week since June 1st. And it does take time. We are in the middle of a crisis. And as we know, any time a crisis hits our community, uh, whether that's a pandemic, whether that is a recession, whether that is gun violence, Black Portlanders carry the brunt of that burden. And we've seen that in the past 2020, which has kicked all of our butts. But truly, we see the pain and suffering that Black folks must endure on a daily basis. And so for us, it wasn't a matter of how much work was it. It needed to get done. And that's part of the reason why the Black Resilience Fund has garnered so much support in such a short period of time. We did not ask for permission. While our communities are struggling and still waiting for unemployment checks to get in, waiting for our do-nothing Congress to pass real relief to families, we knew that there are resources, there's an abundance of resources that we could deploy right now to end this economic crisis. And so we put together a bold vision to ensure that we could build a movement that would provide real tangible support to every Black Portlander who needs it. And so we've set some criteria. We had to set what does real and tangible mean to a Black Portlander. We said the bare minimum that we can do that is tangible is $300. And we needed to foster healing for the Black community to provide that support to as many Black Portlanders as possible. It's not been easy. We've been doing this 100% volunteer run up until two weeks ago. But in that time period, we've already distributed a million dollars. We've done much more than that. We created a mutual aid network that has delivered 300 food boxes a week. We've served 3,000 families in the past 100 days with food boxes. We've done mattress deliveries, AC units, uh, yard work, uh, errands, uh, really showing up for our neighbors so that they can have the support that they need and the resources that they need to live their best life. So you talked a little bit about um, the challenges of being Black in Portland. And Portland has this, um, I was going to say, sort of a famously racist history, but yet there are a lot of white Portlanders who haven't always known that history and maybe some who are really just starting to learn it. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think... Do you think things are changing now? You know, what's really funny about your question, I appreciate it, is I've known about the racist history of Oregon since the day I stepped foot in this state. I came here in the summer of 2009. Wow, time has flown. (laughs) And, uh, you know, originally I was raised in Northern Virginia. I had a mom, a dad. I had three siblings. I like to joke that uh, it took my family four times to get it right. So as you know, I'm the youngest. I'm the only one in my family who finds that funny. But uh, I grew up in an abusive household. And 
you know, after I turned 18, I made the decision to leave so that I could have a future. And I didn't know where I was going to go. I'd never heard of Oregon before. Uh, all I knew was the video game. All I knew was the Oregon Trail <laughs> and that this is where Jackie died of dysentery. Uh, but I ended up here. <laughs> and it, it's okay. It's funny. Don't throw things at me. <laughs> Just laugh. <laughs> and I, the very first night I came to Oregon, uh, I stayed at a dad's friend's, a friend's dad's house in Albany. And after that first night of being here, we were asked to leave. The father was uncomfortable with having a black man staying in his home. And now I was from Northern Virginia. The high school that I graduated from was named after Stonewall Jackson. So you can guess the kind of education that I got about America and race. And so my reaction was to laugh, you know, to have another human being look at me and deny me something as basic as housing because of the color of my skin was absolutely ridiculous. And I literally just laughed. And I said to myself, hmm, I guess there are some racist people in Oregon. That's weird. But I've now lived here for my entire adult life. And I no longer find it to be funny. Uh, every day when I walk out that door, somebody somewhere here will see me as different, other, and less. And it's been hard to know that the place where you've planted roots, that the soil was poisoned. And so the poison of racism is here. Uh, we are all familiar with the white supremacist history and origin of this state, but history does not go away. It persists, it lingers. And we've seen that not just within institutional racism, because we love to talk about that, but we have to talk about the cultural racism, the racism that's embedded in our hearts and our souls. We must heal. White supremacy is a disease. And it is so sad that it is taking the lives of black people slaughtered on camera to finally wake people into action. But I don't wanna be stuck in the past. I want to pivot towards the future. I want this whole community to realize that we can have a future much different than the poisonous poison of the past. And so that's the work that we're doing with the Black Resilience Fund. And it's not enough. Uh, $1.8 million is something to celebrate, but truly we will have a just Oregon when we close the real gap within uh, racial disparities, whether that's the wealth gap, the education gap, the uh, criminal in injustice gap, uh, we must look at this with broader eyes and a stronger heart than ever before. I, I'm kind of curious, just uh, looking at the way that this started out, it was direct financial assistance is a fair term to describe, right? Kind of what was yes. happening. So uh, how did you, I mean, in some ways it's pretty simple. You're like, hey, there's a bunch of people that could use a bunch of help. And so you decided to kind of create the conduit for that. Uh, but how, how did you arrive at direct financial assistance as opposed to some other, maybe like a more merit-based system or, or uh, any other like... Uh, any other way to distribute needs? Uh, how did you just arrive on cash or checks? Great question. So uh, part of my, you know, Oregon story is, you know, after, you know, being denied housing in Albany, I eventually became homeless 
And that was my exposure to Portland. The first day I arrived in Portland, I was dropped off at the doorstep of New Avenues for Youth, a homeless youth continuum based here in downtown Portland. And so, uh, you know, my eyes were open wide to the injustices within our society. I saw peers who, just like me, young people who hadn't been alive long enough to have made a mistake. And yet here they were being denied their basic needs as human beings. And, you know, I remember, you know, for two whole months, I spent every single night worrying whether I'd be turned away from a shelter bed and have nowhere to go. But, uh, you know, I was one of the lucky ones. And it was thanks to the support of Portland's nonprofits that I wasn't turned away from shelter. I have so much to be grateful for, but I also saw the many ways in which the expectations that we've put upon nonprofits and the people who work there have created a toxic culture and that many people who need support are interrogated within an inch of their dignity, mm. who are demonized for not having enough resources to buy food for themselves, who are constantly being told that their shortcomings are all their own, that the society hasn't failed them in any way. And it was so demoralizing to, as a young person who understood very clearly why I was here and why I was homeless, you know, constantly getting the message that I was the problem. And so when we created this fund, you know, myself and Salome Chimuku, our co-founder, uh, we've worked in nonprofits. We have struggled. We've experienced real struggle in our lives. We knew that what was important right now was to support our community. The community came first. We didn't care what uh, a major donor or foundation or a corporate sponsor thought that we needed to do. Our integrity was with our people, showing up for them the way that they needed it. And so we are dealing with the global pandemic. The racial wealth gap in this country between blacks and whites is 10 to one. There is no Oprah's living here in Portland. So if someone is saying we need $300 to put food on our table, we will trust them that that money that we get to them is going to go exactly where it needs to go. And that's truly the only way that we're going to help this community during a time of crisis. Look at our broken, you know, uh, unemployment system. The reason why people are still waiting is because we've created these very dr draconic policies in the middle of a crisis. You know, what happened in 2008, 2009, when the, you know, economy almost collapsed, they said economic stimulus. And they said, you know, banks, who cares what mess you made? Here's a bunch of money. Stay afloat. <laughs> Use, do, pay it back whatever. Do big That's exactly fail. what happened. Yes. Yeah. So why aren't we doing that with our people? That's why, you know, I've been, in, you know, motivated and inspired by Elizabeth Warren. She said grassroots stimulus. And that's what we're trying to do right here. Uh, and yes, we need to do it at a bigger scale. But what we showed when we focused on getting the money exactly to where it needed to be as quickly as possible, that helped yeah. our community stay resilient. And so even though it might not have been all the money that they need, needed, the fact that it came right at that time really helped them to know that they could get through that day. 
And we're still here helping them out, whether it's with a food box, whether it's with yard work. We're still here for our community, letting them know that we are doing everything in our power to ensure that we weather this storm. And also, I want to point out that on your um, website for the Black Resilience Fund, you have these great impact reports and you actually have an extraordinary amount of information and detail about how you're using that money, which is fantastic because that can be, you know, that's a good way for folks to know what you're doing with that money and to feel good, I think, about about and giving money to you. And I just wanted to say that I will be donating to the Black Resilience Fund this evening and want to encourage Thank you. other folks who are listening to do the same. Um, so can you like just talk quickly about like, I mean, I know people can Google it, but can you just tell folks where to go to do that? BlackResilienceFund.com. There we go. Easy. It's, it's pretty easy to remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I bet even if they spell it wrong, they'll somehow find their way there. So. <laughs> um, well, so what's been um, the biggest surprise for you? Like what's been the most exciting thing that's that uh, since you launched this? I, I got to be honest with you. This is probably the most vulnerable moment uh, in the past hundred days. You know, when I started the Black Resilience Fund, I thought maybe we'll raise $5,000. And even three weeks in, which by that time we were over half a million, I just thought tomorrow the money's just stopped coming in. There's nowhere to raise a million dollars because that is not the life that was handed to me. And when we finally reached that day, 28 days in, I woke up from bed and the first thing that I did was call my mom. And, you know, I come from a very challenging childhood, but my mom is one of the few people who has known what I've survived. And so I call my mom up and I'm just crying. And she says, what's wrong? And I said, nothing's wrong. And she's like, why are you crying? And I said, every thing that I've done in the last 29 years of my life has been struggle. And the easiest thing that I've ever done in these 29 years, the easiest thing was raise a million dollars in 28 days. <laughs> That's why I'm crying. Wow. Yeah. I remember the song. I remember the song that I woke up to that morning. It was Rise Up by Andrew Day. And uh, in the chorus, she says over and over again, uh, rise up and I'll do it a thousand times again. And that's exactly what resilience is. And this experience has really hammered into me something that I've had to have known all my life, at least intrinsically, that resilience is a superpower. And I am damn glad that I have it. Yeah. So are we. <laughs> so I was just going to say, I'm definitely not crying now. So anybody who thinks that I am, definitely <laughs> not crying. <laughs> Good, Brad, good. 
I just wanted to, uh, to maybe ask a little bit about it. just the direct financial assistance again was kind of the really attractive part of the pitch to me of the idea that uh, there's a need that can be met right now. Uh, and the need is, uh, it doesn't really matter what the need, the need is money. Uh, people can't pay for stuff that they need. And so that was uh, an opportunity to help in that way was really uh it drew me in, but also I think there's something really empowering about generosity. And in my experience, when I, when I first uh, donated and I became a monthly donor after when that, thank you for making the monthly donation possible. Cause I think that's uh, that's a really useful tool for people who want to partner in the long term as well. Uh, but I think there's something really interesting. Uh, I think uh, money and power being so closely interlinked, and kind of mm-hmm. money is power and money speaks and people talk with where they put their money. Um, there's uh, when you're just giving money away for whatever the need is, um, a lot of charities are going to say, Oh, we, we need the money so we can do this or we need the money so that people can get this thing. Um, and I think you alluded to it earlier, the idea that people know exactly what they need when they're in the middle of the need. And uh, there's, there's kind of an arrogance in some charity work that I've observed where they say, Hey, we know what's best for you. We're not going to let you decide what's best for you. We know. And I love the idea of, of flipping that entire narrative and just saying, Hey, there's a lot of people who have a lot of needs uh, and they need money. Um, and so just give that. Uh, wh- how do you think about those power relationships w- when you're thinking about how this works? Very complex, very complex. Cause uh, I've been a nonprofit executive for five years and I will be one of the most vociferous defenders of nonprofits because uh, they are the moral center for our community. And it's sad because our morality as a people is under attack. And that's part of the crisis that nonprofits must operate in because I agree with you, Brock. And I also challenge you because the reality is, is that the amount of resources that are currently being dedicated to alleviating poverty is nowhere near sufficient. It's not enough. And the amount of money to give someone to eliminate their poverty is not there. And so technically, nonprofits are being forced to become experts on how to at least make sure that dollar is impactful enough. So they're doing their best to show here's how we're stretching that dollar. When in reality, we should really just say, what do we need to do to end poverty? Because we could do that. We could eliminate the need to be innovative on how to use breadcrumbs. Cause that's what we're doing. We build towers out of breadcrumbs. In the end, we know that the cake is there. And so uh, I think for me, it's just continuing to empower nonprofits to have a, a, a voice uh, we need to ensure that the staffers are getting livable wages. We need to ensure that nonprofits are able to, you know, have computers that aren't 30 years old uh, to ensure that we are providing real support to the people in our programs, because it takes more than just a, Oh, you know, I'm putting food on your table. You know, do they have a job? Do they have health care? Are their kids getting to go to school safely? Um, this is the problem is that we don't look at our people holistically. The pressure put on nonprofits is here's $1 solve the tiniest problem you can. I don't think we have to do that. That is a whole lie. That's an illusion that this system has told us to apply ourselves to. 
Uh, let's be bold. We have nothing to lose. Uh, I want to see transformation. We are all tired of being put in the same rat race again. Uh, liberation is here, and we have to work together to fight for it. What's your most ostentatious goal for the Black Resilience Fund? Reparations. There we go. Uh, uh, yes. We need to see a, a real transfer of power and capital for Black, Brown, and Indigenous communities. You know, I remember I was on a talk with a funder a couple of weeks ago, and they said, oh, you raised a million dollars? You sound pretty healed to me. And so for us, it is just continuing to dispel <laughs> the illusions. People think a million dollars is a lot of money. Our wealth gap in this country is egregious. We need trillions of dollars uh, to ensure that our communities can thrive. Even with the amount of money that we've given out, uh, the black partners that we've served are still racking up debt. And meanwhile, the richest person in this country is more rich than when he was before he had a divorce, like what, eight months ago? Yeah. This world is currently flipped on its head. And I believe that we've got uh, a country full of millions of atlases that can turn it back on its head. Uh, and so that's what we need. I believe we need real reparations. And that does mean the immediate transfer of wealth and capital into our communities. You know, I had no idea where you were going to go with that question. And like, that was, that was a great answer. Yeah. So thank you. I love it. I appreciate um, that you connect it to reparations in that I, and I will reveal my ignorance on um, as far as like large system uh, issues go. Um, I've always, I've kind of connected the black resilience fund. Like when it, when it first started mm -hmm. as like, Oh, this is kind of like that step towards in a way towards reparations in that, like we are moving money from, I would say a mostly white source in Portland to a mostly, yeah, black you know, recipient. you know, actually it reminds me of this program that started two years ago called the reparations happy hour. I don't actually know a lot about it, but it was like, formed by some charming, handsome, uh, funny <laughs> individual, whoever their name is. It remains a mystery. <laughs> but uh, the, the secret sauce yeah. uh, for folks who don't know, um, we were able to whip together this program model very quickly uh, because the Black Resilience Fund is actually modeled directly after the Reparations Happy Hour that uh. Uh, I launched in May of 2018. So it helps to have a little pre-work done, a little groundwork laid. Yeah. Well, you're involved in so many things. Um, I believed you when you said you were working 100 hours a day. That seems about right to me. <laughs> um, but can you talk about, so you are also working with some folks um, with the Black Millennial Movement. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, can you, yeah, that's pretty exciting. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And, you know, what I will first preface it with, we've seen a lot happen over a hundred days. And I know a lot of folks ask themselves, you know, what's the, what is all this protesting getting us? And it's really unique to be in this position where uh, my life, my trajectory, my destiny has been molded into what it is today because of protest. You know, I first, you know, got my uh, toes wet, you know, through the Occupy Portland movement. I was 20 years old at the time. And, you know, I remember before that moment, you know, 
I didn't think my story meant a damn. I did not think that I mattered in the greater scheme of society. And it was only that moment when seeing our streets alive with thousands of people. I, I call that moment my cosmic palpitation because that was the moment I realized that this was a poisonous lie from society. And I did have a story and it mattered. And when I shared that story, people listened. Here we are, podcast, living proof. And so I still am in awe with these shockwaves that the positive shockwaves that come from our civic power of protest. And so, you know, folks are asking, what's all this protest leading to? And I ask folks to open their eyes and look at the seeds that are being planted. One of the great examples is the Black Millennial Movement. You know, we, the co-founders, myself, Salome Chamuku, Candice Avalos, Shanice Clark, Gregory McKelvey, Lakayana Drury, we've been doing work in Portland for years. And yet our experiences as Black millennials were unique because not only were we marginalized for our skin color, we were marginalized for our age. And at any time that our elected officials, bless their hearts, were looking for uh, a Black voice to be at a table, they weren't looking for Black millennials. And so what we saw very early on within that week of George Floyd's murder, that there was a power vacuum and that there was more space for blackness to be embraced and to be powerful. And so we knew there needed to be a corner of that vacuum carved out for black millennials because we are emerging into a storm like our ancestors have never seen before. And so that's what we said. We need to create a generational movement. And that's what we've done in just a hundred days. Uh, we have been just leading you know, critics of how our local state and federal government has uh, you know, addressed the peaceful right of protest. And we have also been able to inform public policy, helping to pass uh, police accountability reform here in our city. And we are just getting started. We have no money. We just have brilliant minds that have come together. And we do plan on ensuring that uh, we are building power for the most impacted, the most marginalized in our community. And so uh, please uh, find the Black Millennial Movement on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Please follow our movement leaders. Again, their names are Gregory McKelvey, Candace Avalos, Salome Chamuku, Shanice Clark, Lakiana Jury, and of course, Karen Witten. Um, we are all doing work in different areas, uh, whether that is police reform, whether that's in politics, uh, whether that's in education, whether that is in economic justice, but we have now created this new vehicle for collaboration, for mutual support. And uh, I expect to be voting for many of these leaders uh, and getting them into office in the near future. Yeah, that's a that's a that's a power group you all have assembled there, <laughs> yeah. of uh, smart, talented folks. So, um, so Cameron, we've uh, well, 
I think that we have just met this evening. Um, we're not entirely sure, but I've sort of followed what you've done for, for years. But what I wanted to say, so I'm a mom. I have two teenage sons, and they are black. I adopted them. And um, I just want to say thank you for what you're doing because you are making the city better for my kids um, in, in a real way. So, um so thank you very much um, for that. And I don't know if Aaron and Brock had more questions, but I was going to ask you about a, a bike question, but I don't want to jump in and do that. If they had more, <laughs> if they I, had other. That, that was my question. Is bikes question mark? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wanted... Well, so what I was going to say is that when we first started talking, you told us you had just gotten uh, off of your bike. So I was just going to say like, what kind of biking are you doing these days? <laughs> a lot of folks who, who listen to this are are super into that. So I'm sure folks would be interested to hear, you know, how you bike and how you're getting around town. Yeah. I, you know, uh, for the first, uh, four or five months of the pandemic, I don't really know how long the pandemic's been now. It's been like my lifetime. <laughs> what is so time like the first anyway? Half of my lifetime. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. What is time? Uh, you know, I did not leave the house and, uh, more recently, uh, you know, Brown Hope has, uh, gotten some office space donated and uh, that is where I work and I commute there. It's about 25 minute commute. Uh, and it's great just to have that freedom of cycling again. Um, so uh, I am still physically distancing. Uh, I do not surround myself with people if I don't have to, uh, I'm also working too much. So I, I, I don't socialize. Um, and yeah, I have a beautiful Cervelo. Um, this is probably the bike that I've had the longest without getting stolen. And, uh, his name is Cerberus, uh, carbon fiber. Nice. I like them light. Um, and, uh, egg beaters. I, 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 I use the egg beaters. Love it. Um, efficient. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting to, um, have a voice in the bike community, uh, because it is very white dominated. Um, and the way that I got into cycling was unique. Uh, I, I was homeless. You know, I didn't have money for a bus ticket, let, a, no, let alone a car. And so I remember very early coming into Portland and, you know, being a client of the homeless youth nonprofits. Uh, they did a partnership with Community Cycling Center. And uh, after going through that workshop, that was when I got my first bike as an adult. And it was uh, black. It was aluminum frame. It was all mine. And that gave me freedom. And uh, since then, it's been 11 years. I still yet to have a driver's license. Um, I have all the freedom that I need uh, with this mobility. And uh, yeah, I, I believe that cycling is a part of our solution around fixing our economy, helping our planet, and allowing our people to thrive and be he healthy. And so I love it. And I'm glad to be uh, in a platform, in a place where I can continue to uh, preach the uh, great, uh, I don't know, the, the, the disciple, this discipline, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but the gospel, there you go. So, so he shows you how <laughs> the good news of bicycles. Yeah. <laughs> the gospel of the bike. What if, what if a bicycle was the non-cash part of the reparations movement. Wouldn't that be great? Like a bike for every... A bike in every black. home. <laughs> <laughs> I would say give people what they need. Um, yeah, that's so, right. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, uh, and I think this is the problem with our community is that uh, we give people what they 
what we want to give them. Mm. And uh, very oftentimes I've seen nonprofits where like, I've heard people like, I want to start an ice skating nonprofit because I like ice skating. And it's just like, wow, that is a great way to support your hobby. Um, so uh, <laughs> I, I definitely understand that uh, cycling is a, a big part of how we need to grow as a society. I w- do not equate uh, give people free bikes as reparations. And I, I just want to be very careful <laughs> yeah. with that. Right on. Yeah. Okay. And I also want to be uh, clear that I was joking, but thank you for actually answering it seriously because your answer was actually really a very good point to my very like perhaps too flippant remark about that. So yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad you've been able to get out on your, on your bike. Cause that is such a good way to, I don't know, for me, at least I'm not commuting anymore. I'm working from home, but it's such a good way for me to uh, have some, um, physical activity and it feels like it's super good for my mental health too i like the ice skating idea of like we're not going to stop until everyone is on ice skates. <laughs> and like you say it's it's just not the answer for everybody so ice skates yeah. for every floridian <laughs> <laughs> i mean i have a i uh I, I think I don't know how to I don't know how to gracefully end. I don't know if we've run out of time or, or what. Or I don't want to keep because I feel like I could talk to you for two hours, sure. which I'm pretty sure would give Brock too much to edit. So um, I, I guess maybe I just oh, want I was, to appreciate um, Cameron. At one point, you pronounced the name of the state Oregon, and <laughs> I, I want to give you a thumbs up for that. Because that's how I've been pronouncing it like throughout my entire childhood and up until I moved here and somebody told me I've been doing it wrong. So like for 30 some years, I've been calling it Oregon. And, and I, every time someone says that, I, I just, I want to point that out and give a thumbs up. <laughs> well, I mean, the majority of the country, I would say, calls it Oregon. And <laughs> right. if you had to go with majority rule, I'd say that we're wrong. I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's, I think it's interesting. I, so Joan, you said you've been here since 2009. Yeah, it sounds like uh, maybe we got here around the same time. And I mean, twinsies. It was September yeah, yeah, of two thousand nine yeah. that I arrived in Portland as well. Ah, oh wow! So we're like all Portland that. arrival siblings, I guess. <laughs> I got here in the year two thousand, so I, way back in the day. Yeah, you're out of the club, Brock. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Cameron, uh, if we had, um, is there anything that you wish we had asked you about or anything else you sort of want to share with folks who are listening to this podcast? Yeah. Um, what I would say is we need to ensure this is a movement, not a moment. And mm. I'm sure y'all have heard that already, but that means tangibly working in tandem with black, brown, and indigenous communities to build power. Uh, There is a lot that we can do to take action right now, but systems change is lasting work. It takes lifetime dedication. And my ask for folks listening, for folks who want to be allies in the struggle, find out how are you helping to build power, build capacity, build leadership within communities that do not look like you. Uh, That really is where justice is going to be. All right. That's fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. You all are miracles of life. (laughs) 
as are you. Thank, thank you. you. We're, yeah, we're thank you so really much. grateful for the work you're doing and for the message that you're sharing. And for taking time to chat with us this evening. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming in. Okay. <laughs> Have a good night. Good yeah, night. We'll talk too. to you soon. Best wishes. All right. All right. And here we are on the other side. <laughs> and here we are. Whoa, that's like hey, magic. And you know what's on our calendar? What's that? Oh, it's today. I do. <laughs> do you remember the 21st night of September? <laughs> Love was changing the Who minds of pretenders while chasing the clouds away. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have Anna's, it right Anna's on the other like, side of the computer, like shaking her head at me. <laughs> Scrolling through, trying to find the notes. I kept waiting for you to play the song. I was like, surely he's queuing it up. Um, so this was sent to me. This is really interesting. Is the sound coming through? Not yet. Oh, yeah, there's no sound, but I had forgotten this guy did. He does these every year, doesn't he? Yes, this is the fifth year. So it's, yeah, so it's every 21st, looks like it's I, I'm not familiar with it. Rock does not remember the 21st night of September. <laughs> Uh, so <laughs> I'll just show you that section there. Uh, the video goes on. So this is his fifth one in a row that he's done. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he was, he was saying that, um, you know, Hey, I've done, done five of these now. I think that's a good time time to stop. But then he also <laughs> kind of threw down the gauntlet and said, if, because he's been using these like as a platform for uh, raising money for various uh, charitable organizations. Ah, okay. Um, All right. I like it more already. Yeah. Yeah. And he went, to, <laughs> he went to, on to say like, if this one generates $50,000 to ah. uh, the charity that he's posting on there, he will continue uh, posting for the year after. Uh, there we go. Yeah. So, um, so be generous list- and get more listeners. I'm going to post this along I'm going to post a link to this along with the show uh, on top of donating to the black resilience fund, which we all should do. uh, If you find it in your heart to want to enjoy another one of these, as years goes on of these videos that this guy makes uh, feel free to donate to his cause. Nice. I like it. I was thinking, uh, just thinking about the, uh, the whole thing because Cameron talked about, um, I asked the question of like, you know, isn't, uh, isn't just giving your money away is kind of liberating. And, and then he came back with the idea that actually, uh, 
it's kind of liberating, but also like it's you, you do have There's, to uh, you do have to make the systems that that we have yes. work better too. Yes, and so it's not a one or the other proposition. It's like, hey, there, there's a lot of different causes, and they kind of all have their part, and yeah. none of it's done until everybody has everything they need. Um, and that that's a wonderful world to look forward to, and I hope that we can get there together sooner than later. Yeah, I think that's one of the things I. I liked when he when he mentioned reparations um, that you know this this Black Resilience Fund is is great and I think it's a great model for moving money from or moving wealth from people who have it to mm-hmm. moving it to people who don't and kind of equalizing it. But that in and of itself is not going to work without like systematic changes um, and you know reparations on a larger systematic level is really the only way that that's going to work out. Sure. Yeah. And I think it's probably important to bring up too, that like, I don't know that you have to agree with us or with Cameron on, on like everything. Uh, but I do think it's important to sit with these ideas and for anybody who, who, uh, decided to listen to the whole episode and they don't agree with us. I respect your, uh, respect you for that because uh, a podcast is easy to turn off if it gets into yeah. territory that you're not interested in. I know usually we talk more about bikes, but you know what you're here and we're glad you're listening. Uh, but I think it's really important to, uh, to consider all those things, uh, a lot of people feel like they have to they have to lose something. Uh, but really, the way that most people do giving and charity, you're really not losing all that much. Um, and that's a good place to start. I think it's a good idea to find out like what, uh, what, what how, how much can one give? You know, I, I yeah. think I'm, I've, I've started to think that through and, and it's also, it's not for everybody. You know, not everybody has a bunch of money. Some people need to get money right now. And so everybody knows which one they are. Uh, I don't think, I don't think I have to explain to you which one you are, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but either way, I think it's a good idea. If, uh, if you have it and you can give it, it's a good idea too. So yeah a good place to start anyways. And I think it's, it's good to think about like, maybe, maybe this isn't as difficult as people make it out to be. I think um, what I really enjoyed about speaking with um, Cameron that has me reflecting a little bit or a lot is that um, it's been a pretty bleak time um, in a lot of ways with Mm -hmm. the pandemic, um, you know, uh, in just a lot of challenges for a lot of people right now. Um, and uh, then in Portland, we had, what, eight, nine, ten days of just this, you know, wildfire smoke just shrouding us. And, you know, we couldn't even get out of our houses. And it was it was feeling uh, pretty rough and overwhelming. And so um, when talking to someone like Cameron, who's doing all this work, uh, makes me feel hopeful. And that is not something that's easy to come by right now. Um, so that's pretty fantastic to see the work that he's doing and some of the um, other projects that he's working on, the Black Millennial Movement. Um, it's really, you know, there are folks who are, uh, who are not giving up. So then I'm yeah. like, well, I'm not, I'm not giving up. There's, you know, there's a lot we can do. Yeah, I like that the uh, kind of the parent organization of the Black Resilience Fund is Brown Hope because hope is half of the name and it's what it's all based in. Right on. Well, would you like some news? Let's talk about some news. Let's, Let's talk about some news. 
can compare with the thrill of a brand new bike. All right, so this came to me via my partner off of streetsblog.org. It's a guest column. Walking school buses need to be part of school reopening plans. Mm. And this is about student transportation, but it's about walkability. So I'm putting it on here. Um, this, uh, this columnist, uh, the quote I pulled here, one of my students, a fifth grader, lived in Roxbury, and his house was just over a mile from the school, so he qualified to the ride to ride the school bus. Kadir typically left his house at 8.40 a.m. to wait for the bus. Many mornings, the bus was delayed in traffic and wouldn't arrive until after the first bell at 9.15, which meant he had to rush to eat his breakfast before class started at 9.30. When school ended at 4.10, Kadir waited in his bus room to go home, his family had told me that evenings he wouldn't arrive till after six because of the rush hour traffic. <clears throat> and the the crux of this article is is less about um, how terrible bus buses are, you know. Though I will agree in in the current system that we have in student transportation, a bus ride is pretty awful. <laughs> As it somebody who be, drives yeah. a bus, like, right. uh, and it's it's this weird uh, kind of vicious cycle where uh, a kid will ride a bus, and and um, at least from my experience, I've talked with parents and have have uh, done some sort of advocating uh, to the parents, saying like, yeah, you know, the, I would really like, you know timmy to ride the bus but i i understand like this has been a problem so a parent will will maybe pull their kid from riding the bus because of various issues usually it's timing either the bus is late to school or the bus is late coming from school that's i would say in my experience one of the biggest issues with with uh busing specifically um and then what happens is then that parent drives that student to school, therefore putting another car on the road, exacerbating the problem. So then the kids that are still on that bus are going to effectively be even later, not because of one car, but because of more cars. Um, and it just becomes this vicious cycle. That said, so the crux of this article is about making walkability more normal and more accessible to people with in the walkable boundaries of the schools. Yeah. I like, I like it. I mean, yeah. it, it's not, it's not an all seasons approach, right? <laughs> no, um, I suppose because not. weather gets, gets worse as the year goes on, but, but certainly in the shoulder seasons of fall and spring, like there's a lot of ways, even if it does rain that you can be outside. And certainly with the, uh, you know, with the worries about, air quality, well, not air quality, I guess if you're outside, the air quality can be worse with the wildfires we just experienced, but, but with, uh, virus transmission risk and that sort of thing, uh, it's, you're probably safer if you're in more air and you're out outside. So yeah, it seems like a decent idea. Yeah. And for those for whom it works. Yeah. 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 And I don't, have you ever heard of a, a walking school bus? 
Yeah, you don't need a license to drive one. <laughs> you don't need a license to drive one. And uh, yeah, I think it's it's a great community builder as well. You know, um, you're walking with a whole group of people that uh, I'm assuming live in your area. Yeah, and I would also assume that uh, like the biggest deterrent to walking is that you don't want your kid out there all alone walking to school. But if they walk in a group, suddenly you've got a chaperone because there's probably going to be at least one parent involved and uh, you got a bunch of people there and it, it becomes an event. It becomes a, a time to socialize. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it does seem like an excellent solution for, again, for the people who, who have that. And right. some people aren't lucky enough to have sidewalks, for example, or that sort of thing. Uh, but, but in the places where they exist, what a great solution. Yeah. And in the places they don't exist, let's get some sidewalks. That's yeah. right. That's right. Or take to the streets. Take the walking school bus. At, no, I'm not saying you should do that. That, that sounds <laughs> Kick dangerous. Kick the cars off. Kick the cars out. That's it. That's it. What we need is, is uh, a bunch of people. We need, uh, we need corkers. What we need is uh, <laughs> Kitty corkers. Kitty a corkers. bike parade that can uh, block the street before and after the, the large line of students that are walking to school. Sign me up. Yeah. A new kind of uh, kidical mass, is that what they call it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I like it. Hey, and you know what? I, I'm not suggesting you should do this, but um, one great thing about walking when you are of age over 21 is that you can go directly to and from the beer mongers at Southeast Division and 12. That's uh, right. And, you know, and they're always open. They're always open. Yeah. So if you could use a little more schooling, particularly in cribbage, <laughs> uh, on Tuesday nights when their patio is open and, and you can you can go out and you can be in the air and you can be distanced from people that you need to be, but you can also play some cribbage. Uh, you might have to bring your own cribbage board this time around. But yeah, I'm going to pop open my own non-alcoholic beverage Ooh. right now. What you- this is the second time I've heard something about cribbage in the, in the past week. So mm, that's um, a sign. You should play is, some. Are you all hanging out with my dad? Is that what's going on? <laughs> I did get my parents uh, a custom cribbage board for their anniversary this year. They just hit uh, 40 years of being together, which is no small feat. And uh, they play a game of cribbage every night. Maybe that's why they stuck together so long. I don't know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I had my friend Aaron Green from uh, author of We Were Like Sons, founder of The Regranary. I had him do a little custom board and it turned out very nicely. Nice. I never, um, my dad never successfully taught me cribbage. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe this is my moment. Maybe you, this is when you have to, want to learn. It. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I want it. <laughs> <laughs> who wants to take the time to figure out the pegs and who counts and whether you can cheat or not? Although, you know what? It just occurred to me. Maybe I'll tell you what, if I could get my dad to like video chat or zoom with me playing ah, cribbage, nah, maybe that go. would be the way to go. There we go. Then you need multiple cameras so you can have a camera on the board so you can see what's going on and you can see which cards are being played and such and so forth. Hmm. I, there's got to be like an app out there, right? There's got to be. I was going to say, there's a you play yeah, cribbage or some website if you want to yeah. play like, I don't know what, solitaire cribbage or, or against a virtual opponent or something. If you want to fight. I don't know if my dad would be up for that. Like he, he <laughs> receives texts, but he doesn't answer them oh same with my dad (laughs) hey so while we're doing commercials here i'm gonna do a quick one i just got a delivery of some delicious food 
from our good friends, the Cascadian Courier Collective. Oh, man. Yes. What's um, in that bag? <laughs> I'm not supposed to look. It's supposed to be a surprise. So okay. Wait, from but, who's the surprise from? Uh, Anna ordered food. Oh, I <laughs> well, thought nice you were. That was really nice. That was really nice of her. Yes. <laughs> Very good. Well, that means we should finish up our news and mail so you can eat. But yeah, um, I just want to give a shout out to them because they, during all of the smoke and everything, they still continue to deliver um, food for people who needed it be- or and or and or wanted it, I guess, uh, because that's what they do best, and that's how they felt they could support the community um, while everybody else that's was impressive. stuck indoors. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty yeah, awesome. That's a big so, service. Big that's shout a big out service. Cool. Anyways, so there's there's a shout out. Um, last piece of mail. I don't know if you guys read this. This was uh, from Bike Portland. Former ODOT committee members blast agency for silencing opposition. I've heard about this. Jonathan Miles always has great headlines. Um, so... I think we mentioned this in a previous episode where, um, uh, crap. I, I, I came in, didn't it. I talk about it a little bit? Oh, I, think. I would love it. Yes. What, or no, I was, when I uh, was on the podcast before, I yes. think I, I talked about it. It's just, um, it's pretty extraordinary that, oh, that the Oregon Department of Transportation is still pushing ahead with this project, but they, they dissolved the committee that they created, um, in favor of another committee um, that's going to focus on having um, more black folks on it, except that um, some of the people who are on the original committee who are black were very unhappy and, and feel like ODOT is basically just trying to get the feedback that they want. And so um, the, the former deck. members of that, yeah, yeah wrote this uh, just scathing letter. Um, one person said, uh, I find it frustrating to sit on advisory committees and know that all of the design financial decisions and considerations have already been determined long before any real restorative justice can take place. Mm. So, I mean, here we are in the state that's um, having to, you know, dig behind the couch cushions to pay for um, all the damage that's been done by these terrible fires. And yet we're still moving ahead with this um, freeway expansion that looks like it might cost a billion dollars. So I have some feelings about that. <laughs> Is that more or less than we've spent on tear gas recently? Probably about the same. Okay. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we never have to find out where money's coming from for those things. So, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little disappointing. It seems like it's a bad trend. Mm-hmm. But I am hoping that, uh, you know, maybe, maybe, um, I don't know. Maybe something will happen and this freeway won't get built. Maybe this, yeah. I, I feel optimistic about it, in all honesty. Is that? Do you? Yeah. Is that weird? Good. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, I don't know. There's the just fact that you're so the lone optimistic voice on the podcast, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's just been so much bad press. Like, for them to continue to move on with this seems like a terrible misstep. There's been um, some. There's been some. Gosh, I, I I haven't read them. Maybe I'll, I'll dig them up for for um, another news item. I don't know if you all have talked about them, but some things lately about how state Department of Transportations are sort of misaligned. Like even in more liberal and progressive states, how the departments of transportation are 
are uh, don't seem to be implementing projects that are consistent with the values of you mm. know the elected officials in the state, even at the statewide level, even at the statewide so. level. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Systemic change is hard. The bigger the ship, yes. the harder it is to steer. People just those those highway engineers just really like building highways. <laughs> well, it's true. There's only so many ways to build a six lane freeway. <laughs> Right. Hey, can I tell you all something else somewhat off the subject, but on the subject of bikes? Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about this saddle I'm trying out. Ooh. So much so I'm talking about it right now as opposed to just posting it on Instagram. Nice. Ooh. I love that I can do this, by the way. Ooh, yeah. Your bicycle, again, is right there. I feel bad this for is, folks who are listening who, yeah. who can't see this well, beautiful let's, thing. Let's describe it for this them, is shall we? <laughs> Ergon. I don't know if you know the brand, but all of my flat bar bikes have Ergon grips. I love their grips. They, they in the past look. couple of years, have taken to designing and manufacturing saddles. And Ergon sounds and, like uh, that's the kind of name that would. Uh, uh, it sounds like it. it's good for your body. Right, right. They know what they're doing with grips. <laughs> um, I've tried this. So why wouldn't out. you trust them it, with your butt? Took it on a uh, almost thirty mile ride, and I feel pretty good about it. Nice. Um, yeah. Another shameless plug. I got it at the Saddle Library. From was Gladys going to Bikes. ask. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So this is my third saddle I've tried out, um, and this might be the last saddle I've tried out. We'll find ah, out after a week or so. You, you, you have found the one? Quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Anna, I wanted to tell you something. <laughs> I met a saddle. Oh my. <laughs> I, got, I met this saddle. <laughs> She'd understand. <laughs> I, I would think so. It's, it's, that's the resilience of your relationship. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, wanted to mention that. Very good. Very happy is, with that saddle so far. And so for those who couldn't see it, you're also going to put it on Instagram, right? Yeah, I probably will. Okay. All right. Good, good. Yeah. I'm a visually oriented person, so heck of a, <laughs> <laughs> heck of a uh, person to also be on a podcast, but oh well. I, my, uh, on my, on my like uh, commuting mixty, my really old bike, it just, it has the saddle that, that it was one of the only sort of newer things on the bike when I bought it. It's like this old um, 70s uh, Raleigh mixed B, but, um, and, it, and the, the saddle has just been ripped and falling apart for months. And I even bought a new one and have not, yeah, like I just realized that I have had a new saddle for, for, for months and haven't put it on my bike. And <laughs> um, maybe, I think, Aaron, I think maybe you have inspired me ah, to actually, because the thing is, if you don't put the new saddle on your bike, you it's yeah, not going to um, help you. Yeah. You'll never use it, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And it looks better on the bike than it does in the box. <laughs> yeah, it's just sitting in my basement. What's it doing there? I guess it will yeah. stay in mint condition that way. That's true. It might hold its value more. <laughs> Depends on what kind of value we're talking about. Yeah, that's true. I mean, right now, I don't know. I feel like, uh, yeah, 
bikes are, are, are going so fast. I feel like now is the time when I have a, a bike I've been meaning to sell for ages. I feel like now I need to spiff it up and, and sell it while people are still really excited to buy bikes. There you go. Before they're like, ah, bikes, pshaw. <laughs> yeah, before the market is flooded with all these bikes, nobody wants to ride anymore. <laughs> Everybody dumps everything they acquired. You know, we've got reams of toilet paper. We've got That's bikes. Ah. We've got, you know. That's my yep. moment to shine Workout right there. Equipment. I'm waiting Why for Jane is caught up. <laughs> Yikes. Oh, hey, uh, guess what I did today? What's that? I canceled my Amazon Prime membership. <gasps> yes. Ooh. On uh, World Car Free Day, I think. And is it what? Joseph Smith's birthday from the, the Mormon tradition? I think sure? they're the same that, day. Was that oh, connected? It's weird that you know that. Uh, yeah, it's just because I, I put both items on my calendar. Uh, <laughs> but that happens to be the date that my Amazon Prime membership was to renew. <laughs> And I don't know if I've taken the, uh, uh, I don't know, the, the um, coward's way out or something. I paused my membership. I did not cancel it. But I also said to myself that, you know, part of the reason that they tell me I saved $129 in shipping fees last year is because I felt like I wasn't paying for any shipping. And if I don't feel like I'm paying for shipping, I'll probably order fewer things. I might source them at least through businesses I like better. Um, and I would imagine that the amount I pay on shipping is going to cost less than that anyways. And their music service is trash. And, you know, their, their TV shows are trash and all that Except stuff. Except the Expanse, so, which nah, they bought off of sci-fi. F it. Not into it. <laughs> they got which, worse. It went which downhill. I will get after it's off of... Amazon. But. There, there is no downhill in space, right? But it went downhill. <laughs> <laughs> but I just remembered that uh, some time ago, Microcosm Publishing released, I believe, uh, a pub. It was a zine or a book about uh, breaking up with Amazon, and we had meant to talk to them about that and be like, "Hey, what's up with that?" Because Microcosm does a lot of uh, bicycling stuff, and maybe uh, now that we're doing this Zoom thing, maybe we can work out the schedules to where uh, we get Joe to come in and talk about that. Oh but, yeah. But yeah, uh, so F the man. I, I quit my Amazon thing. Good for you. I paused my Amazon thing to be completely accurate, but I'm not paying them. <laughs> because uh, they will never forget you. They will, you, you will always yeah. be welcome back to Right, them. right. Well, and, and at some point I'm probably going to be like, but I really want to watch that show, even though it sucks. So, um, yeah, yeah, so that's a good, I, I need to think about doing that. I, I, I missed my renewal or like a, it renewed automatically. Oh, I mean, yeah. I knew it was coming, yeah. but see, I did that last year. And yeah. then that's why I put it on my calendar right next to world car free day and Joseph Smith's birthday, which, um, so I did look that up and it's December 23rd, 1805. Which one? Not even close. Brock. So maybe, Oh no, it's not the birthday. It's when he found the golden plates. <gasps> the golden plates. I, I grew up uh, near in, in Palmyra, New York. I grew Is that up right? There. Yeah. Did you see the plates? And, uh, no, but I went. <laughs> All right. <laughs> but I went to. I don't know the where, joke where the is, plates Joe, are. No one saw the plates. Oh, it's very possible no one did. But who knows? Okay. I'm not going to cast aspersions. We're a big tent here. But no, I did go to the Hill Gomorrah Festival when mm. I was in high school, and it was yeah. quite a pageant. It was fascinating. Yeah, it was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they they really stick to their story. That's the thing. So yeah, yeah, it was a good show. It was a good show. I mean, if you were going for nice. entertainment. Nice. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Cool deal. Well, hey, I think we got to the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> we made it. 
And hey, actually, um, this week, I, I've been meaning to get to it, but uh, you know, what with the pandemic and the wildfires and air quality and, and all the things happening, I uh, haven't just gotten around to it yet. But Jay Lico, furniture maker. Oh, yeah. Uh, read our credits this week. Awesome. So I'm going to put that in at the end here. Uh, should we still read the credits just in case I can't find it or in case it doesn't work? <laughs> well, I went to all the trouble to put our first initial over. Oh, you did. Okay. Let's, each line. Uh, oh, um, should we so do Jay Lico next, next week? We then? could do this this week and just let's, have it to throw in some other time, or we could mix it up in some way of your choosing. Cause you're the editor. That's true. <laughs> uh, well, since you went to all the trouble, why don't we do Jay Lako's credits next week? And then we'll do uh, this one since you right uh, on. since you redid it so nicely. And while you say that, uh, just a quick mention for anybody listening. If you care to read our credits and record yourself, we will probably play that. Send we will most definitely way. play that. We That's will right. most definitely play that. Send yeah, it our will way. Def- if you're a donor, we will definitely play it. And if you're not a donor, we'll think about it. <laughs> and if you're not a donor... Donate and we'll play it. That's right. <laughs> there you go. I think we There's worked a, it all out. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Should we right, get, here should we get going? All right. The Sprocket Podcast was formerly produced at X Ray FM Studios. Thank you, X Ray. Now it's on Zoom. Our website is thesprocketpodcast.com. Email to thesprocketpodcast at gmail.com. Call or text to 503-847-9774. Twitter. Twitter. Twitter and Instagram at Sprocket Podcast. Thanks to Ryan J. Lane for our theme music. Hurtbird for our headline sounder. Marcus Norman for graphic design. And thanks to the generous support of our Patreon supporters and listeners. Shadowfoot, Wayne Norman, Eric Iverson. Cameron Lean, Richard Wazenski, Tim Mooney. Glenn Kubish, Matt Kelly, Eric Wise. Todd Parker, Dan Gebhardt, who's, who's a, a time, time traveler. traveler. Chris Smith. Cri- oh, yeah. Chris Smith, Caleb Jenkinson, J.P. Cooley. Peanut Butter Jar Matt, Marco Lowe, Rich Otterstrom. Andrew in Colorado, with whom I had beer so many years ago now. Drew <laughs> the Welder, Anna. He'll be home soon. <laughs> We're both Andre- home, actually. <laughs> Andre Johnson, King of Division, Richard G. Guthrie Straw, who is out in the woods still. Aaron Green, author of We Were Like Sons and founder of the Regrainery. Campsite, Mac Nurse David, Nathan Poulton. Worry in Michigan, Jeremy Kitchen, David Belay. Tim Coleman, Harry Hugel, EJ Finneran. Brad Hipwell, Thomas Skato, Keith Hutchison. Ranger Tom, Joyce Wilson, Ryan Tam. Jason Offenberg, Microcosm Publishing, David Moore. Todd Grosbeck, a fantastic artist. Chris Barron, Chris, Chris Barron, Barron and Chris, Chris Barron. Barron. Sean Baird, Simon Pace, Gregory Braithwaite. Ryan Morrow, Dude Luna, Matthew Rooks. Caca! Caca! Marshall, Paula at Funatake Cyclecraft. Philip N. Spartandale. No relation. No relation. <laughs> Mr. T, who never really left. Bike Initiative, Kiwana, Sarah G. Adam D, go dig a hole, Beth Hammond. Greg Murphy, Mayra Martinez, Oso. Isaac M, David Christensen, 503. Byron Patterson, Kirsten Graham, and our newest donor, Aaron G. And Aaron, we're going to send you your rewards. 
Please know that. And all of our former donors who helped us get this far. Now wash your hands. And wear your mask. And brush your teeth. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. Hi, Bay.